0: You're listening to audio from 7 Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit 7 So if you had two minutes with Jesus and you knew you could ask him one question, What would you ask them? You got two minutes. You got time for one question. What would you ask them? How many of you would ask, Jesus, how could I be happy? I really, really like happiness. What is the secret to that happiness? Or maybe some of you would say, Jesus, how could I be financially secure? Would anyone want to know when they were going to die? Like, Jesus, I, I just need to know the time. I, I, if I knew that, I could figure everything else out. Or how many of you would just like a, a status report? Jesus, how am I doing? Like, give me a, a, a progress report, you know, so I can kind of manage. Am I doing life right? Trying really hard. Well, this morning, as we continue in our Portraits of Jesus series, we meet a man who gets this opportunity. We meet a man in Mark's Gospel who gets a few minutes with Jesus and he asks him one question. Here's his question. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I think it's an honest question. I think it's one of those questions that lies at the center of every human soul And I actually think it's a question we should all be asking. So in in one sense, this guy does a really good job. He doesn't waste his question. And as we work our way through this text this morning, we're going to see three movements. First, we're going to see the question that he asks. Then Jesus is going to give him an answer And then finally, there's going to be this explanation to the answer that Jesus gives. So in verse 17, we'll see the question, and we're going to spend some time unpacking that question because I think there's a lot of assumptions in his question that it's important for us to understand exactly what he's asking. And then in verses 18 to 22, we'll look at the answer that Jesus gives. And one of the things I love about Jesus is when he answers people's questions, he's direct, he's straightforward. It's personal, the way he uh, engages with this man. And then in verses 23 through 31, after the man walks away, he has a conversation with his disciples. And he's explaining um, his reasoning, he's explaining um, the answer to that question. As per usual, in the aftermath of his conversation with someone, the disciples are kind of confused about what's going on. And so Jesus is explaining Um, his answer. So as we work our way through this passage, you'll see three major movements. The question, the answer, and the explanation. Let's start together, verse 17, and see his question. Here again, the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now I know we're kind of parachuting into Mark's uh, gospel this morning. So here we are in chapter 10. And they are just now weeks away from entering Jerusalem for his final time to complete his mission here on earth. So if you, if you want to think about it, I mean, it's like they're making their final approach um, into Jerusalem. His public ministry is coming to the end. And just a few, like uh, a, a, a turn of the page in your Bible, Jesus will uh, 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 stand trial. He'll be arrested and he will go to the cross. He's making that final journey. And on the way, he meets a man. Now, what do we know about this guy? Well, from this story, we're going to find out that he's wealthy. And from Matthew and Luke's Gospels, because they also talk about this story, we find, out, we find out that he's young and that he's the ruler of some kind, which is why often people refer to him as the rich, young ruler. Okay, if you met him today, you would describe him as all set. You'd be like, well, that, that guy is, is all set. He's wealthy. He's important. He's arrived. On the surface, there's nothing that this guy needs. You know, like if you were trying to buy a gift for him, you'd say, what do you buy the guy that has everything? He's got means. He's got uh, connections. he, He doesn't really need anything. He is all set. And as Jesus is passing through his town... Mr. Allset recognizes him. He knows who he is. He's, there's just a lot of conversation um, going around in these towns at this time about this man named Jesus. And he's heard of him and he doesn't want to miss an opportunity to ask him a question that's been burning deep inside. And So he runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him. If you can picture him there in your mind, he's kneeling down, which is significant, Right? He's probably used to people kneeling down before him as a ruler, as an important person. And yet here he is before Jesus, and he shows a posture of inward humility. And then he asks him the million-dollar question, which now we have to adjust for inflation, is probably the trillion-dollar question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want to unpack this question because I think there's some assumptions he makes that we need to tease out. The first is the the way he addresses Jesus as good teacher. Now, let me unpack that assumption. See, already he sees Jesus primarily as a teacher, one who's there to give insight, knowledge, uh, and advice. In other words, you could think of him as uh, he sees Jesus as a spiritual consultant, Right. He's, he's got other things going on in his life, uh, that uh, areas of domain that he's, he's doing really well at. And he's kind of wondering, what, what about my spiritual life? So I'm going to come to this guy, Jesus, and get some spiritual um, insight. So like, for instance, if you want help with your uh, your uh, stock market portfolio, you don't go to a veterinarian. You go to a financial planner, someone who's, that's their area of expertise. They're, they're a subject matter expert. It's what they do. They can help make sure you're, you're, you're adequately um, diversified and make sure that you're putting in your investments in the right place. And so another way to think about it is he's coming to Jesus to make sure that his spiritual portfolio um, is in order. Now, it's not that Jesus isn't a teacher. He certainly is, but but that's not his primary only identity. Now here's another assumption he makes. The second assumption is that eternal life is about doing. Did you hear that in his question? He said, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" Now, I'm not making a big deal out of out, out of out of small words. What I'm doing is is looking at there's a fundamental assumption in the way that the question is asked. "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" For the rich young ruler, The way to salvation is by doing. It's something that you achieve. It's something that you earn. In other words, you work for salvation. And therefore, what do I need to do in order to get it? Salvation is the reward. And so there's got to be a path of doing that gets you there. It's decided by your actions. Now think about that. If that is your fundamental primary baseline understanding of how salvation works then it will totally determine how you live your life if salvation is by doing and you want to get there well then you got to spend your life doing the things to work yourself along that road to get there see if if salvation is fundamentally something you achieve by works well then you better get to work You don't want to waste time and energy by not working towards this great thing. And you better not leave something out either. And so you want to make sure not only that you're doing the right things, but you're not doing the wrong things, and that you're putting yourself in the best possible position in order to receive that reward and to gain that achievement. That's why he's asking Jesus this question, to make sure he's mapped his road correctly. Third assumption. Not only does this question reveal an assumption about who he thinks Jesus is, not only does it reveal an assumption about how he thinks salvation works, it also reveals an assumption about his own identity. Here's what I mean. Identity, by its very nature, is is derived in other words, it's, it's rooted and sourced in something. We, we, uh, our, our identities aren't uh, entirely uh, things that, that we can self-derive. L- let me explain this. See, we need something or someone to tell us who we are. And so we usually pile up a list of identities that forms our unique blend. So, for example, I'll give you some of my identities. I am a Christian. That word Christian tells me something about who I am. I am a man. That word tells me something about who I am. I'm also a husband. That word tells me something about who I am. I'm a father. I am a pastor. I am a Red Sox fan. And I'm not like a fair weathered fan, even though we're doing terrible right now. I'm still a Red Sox fan. John, you know what I'm talking about. All right? I'm also a foodie. I love food. I love making food. I, I, I love eating good food. I'm a carpenter. Really good with a saw and a hammer. And all of these things uh, are identity markers that help tell me who I am. Now, some are more important than others, right? But, but that mix, it, 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 like just in those several words, you get not a full complete picture because there's nuance there. But you get some understanding of who I am, what I enjoy, what gives me my drive. Each one tells a little bit of my story. And collectively, along with others, they make up my identity, And in this question, this man has revealed an important aspect of his identity, that he derives a lot of his worth and identity from his possessions and accomplishments. Now, we don't know that fully right now, just in the question, but as we see the story unfold, when Jesus puts that in front of him as the the object or or the obstruction to his salvation, he checks out, doesn't he? We know the story. See, what I would, I would put before you, that there is this refrain that is being sung in the deepest parts of his soul that says this, I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what I have. I am what I do. See, his identity is based on his performance and achievement He's wanting, Jesus, he's wanting to ask Jesus, what can I do? What do I do? What do I do? Because I am what I do. And so I want to make sure that I'm doing it right. When Jesus uh, puts his possessions as, uh, in front of him as the obstacle to his salvation, he says, there's no way I can get rid of those. He walks away sorrowful and discouraged because to give up those things would be to give up his very life. Do you see his attachment to what he does And to what he has. I am what I do. I am what I have. See on the surface it seems like a really simple question. But there is so much wrapped up in it. It's so much more than a question of will I go to heaven when I die. It's a question of identity. Jesus, who am I? And he's asking Jesus, what do I need to do in order to be secure? I bet you. Anybody who met him thought, that this guy's all set. If anyone is secure, if anyone feels stable, it's this guy. And yet, his very question shows that he's standing on a faulty foundation. He's wanting to know, what must I do to be secure? Do you hear the insecurity in his question? On the surface, he appears to be all set. But in reality, at the core level, he is still searching. Or else why would he be asking Jesus if there's anything else he's missing, if there's anything else that he's not achieved? And I think his question is a question we have all asked ourselves. And maybe we don't ask it or word it exactly the same way, but I think he's asking one of the most basic, one of the most fundamental questions. We want to know who we are. And we want to know that when all is said and done... Have I measured up? Have I done enough to be accepted by God? Every one of us at some point in our life, in the quiet parts of our soul, or maybe in the the loud shoutings of our soul, have asked that question. That's the question. Now let's turn to see the answer. Verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now here we see Jesus respond to the man's question with a question. Jesus does this all the time. See, in those days it was common to call a rabbi teacher but Jews would never have added that adjective good in front of it. Meaning no Jew uh, would have gone up to a rabbi and said good teacher. That would have been very uncommon. Not because they didn't think that they were, they were good at their, at, their, at their job or that they were good moral uh, people. It's just that good was one of those words that was reserved to describe God alone. Because only God himself is truly good. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say he isn't good. He didn't say, why do you call me good? I'm not good. He didn't say that. He just says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And so do you see what he's doing there? He's saying, only God is good. You're calling me good. And he's kind like, of you know, like, hey, are you going to get there? Like, are, are you going to put those two things together? Did you mean to say that? Was it? Did you misspeak? In other words, Jesus is saying, listen. Don't be fast and loose with that word good until you're ready to call me God. When you're ready to call me God, you can call me good all you want. Now, Jesus leaves that alone for a minute. He just kind of pushes that to the side. He addresses it and moves on. And uh, uh, Jesus recites to him uh, commandments 5 through 10. And reciting these, he's not merely reminding him of God's good standard... He, there's an implicit question, like, have you done these things? Have you lived your life in accordance with these commands? Think about it. The, the commands he's uh, reciting, he doesn't do one through four, which are all commands about how you um, honor the Lord. He, he looks at how you uh, interact with, with uh, people. So it's like, to honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't defraud. So he's, he's basically saying, listen, you seem like a really wealthy person. Have you defrauded anyone? In other words, have you misrepresented the facts in your business dealings? Have you stolen? How how did you acquire your wealth? Have you exploited people? Have you lied to them? Is that how you got your way to the top? And the young man replies, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. In other words, I think what he's trying to tell Jesus is, I've acquired my wealth legitimately. There were no Ponzi schemes. Uh, I didn't rob a bank my wealth has come through honest hard work I've tried to be kind i've tried to be just in my business dealings and notice jesus doesn't call him a liar he doesn't say that's not true i mean we've seen jesus in the gospels when someone tells him something shady he'll confront it so this is not jesus being um unconfrontational he's just he just says okay I, i i i believe you see jesus believes it's entirely possible for a person to earn wealth honestly and without corruption. You can work hard. You can make wise decisions. You can be savvy. You can invest well. And you can succeed. That's entirely possible to, do, to be wealthy and to do so uh, through honest means. See, for Jesus, having money is not inherently wrong or sinful. Now, I don't think this man is so foolish to think that he's lived a sinless life. I don't think that's what he's saying when he's saying all these things I've kept from my youth. It would have been very uncommon uh, for a Jew at this time to to, 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 uh, to say that they've been sinless and perfect. But he's saying, by and large, I have really strived to keep God's law. He's saying what most people think. Jesus, I have lived a pretty good life. Like, if you ask most people, hey, have... Have you been good? Are you a good person? Most people say, yeah, never killed anybody. Which is just so funny to me that that's like our standard, you know? It's like you're a good person as long as you've not killed somebody. You're a bad, you kill someone, you're a bad person. You don't kill someone, you're a good person. Never killed someone, therefore, I'm a good person. It's a really low standard of goodness, by the way. But I think what he's saying is I've, I've tried really hard to do the right thing. But notice, he's got a sneaking suspicion in his life that something's missing. Again, that's why he's asking Jesus this question. He's got a sneaking suspicion suspicion that something is missing. And now at this point in the conversation, he's answered all of Jesus' follow-up questions. He's probably feeling pretty good. He's like, okay, like Jesus said... You know, I asked what should I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus said you need to do these things. And he's like, well, i actually actually done done pretty good job at doing those. So he's kind of standing there ready that Jesus will pronounce to him, okay, well then you will receive eternal life. Now Jesus looks at him, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him. Friends, by the way, I don't think there's any wasted words in scripture. I think those are, are, are probably some of the most important words in this entire story. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and then said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked at him. And loved him. See, when Jesus looks at you, friends, he sees you. Now, I know when we look at each other, we often see what the other person wants us to see. How we project ourselves. How we uh, present ourselves. We hide a lot. But you can't hide from Jesus. So when Jesus sees you, not only does he see that insecurity, but he sees right through all of the veneer into the heart. He sees your past, he sees your present, he sees your future, he sees your hurts, he sees your deepest desires, he sees your greatest hopes, he sees your fears, he sees your insecurities. Friends, he sees the dark places that only you know about. He sees your shame, he sees your guilt. Friends, nothing is hidden to Jesus. And when he sees you, he sees All of you. And when he sees this man, what is his response? Is it rejection? Is it correction? His first response I want you to see is to love him. Upon seeing him and taking a good look at him, Jesus' first impulse is love. It's love. And then because Jesus loves him so much... He can't stay silent. He has to say something to this man. And because he responds first in love, that's why you can trust whatever Jesus says next. And friends, for us today, when we read God's word and we see hard truths, things that we don't want to change, things that we don't want to do, you can always respond to him with trust because he loved you first. That's what Paul says. We love because he first loved us And how do you know? The great proof of Jesus' love is that on this road, after he finishes this conversation with this man, where does he go? He keeps on moving towards Jerusalem to be beaten, mocked, shamed, and to die a traitor's death on the cross. That's why you know he's proven his love for you. It's not, hey, do all these things and then I'll love you. He loved him before he told him anything. He's saying, I love you. Now, trust my words for you. And looking at him with those loving eyes, Jesus invites him to do something contrary to everything he knows and values. See, Jesus looks right into his heart and sees the one thing that is keeping him from embracing Jesus. You see, you can only embrace one thing at one time. And he sees this man has embraced his wealth and his possessions. And so if he's going to embrace Christ, what he's got to do? He says, give it all up. Give all of that up and come follow me. You see, in order for this young man to freely embrace Jesus, he's got to give up his grip from his money. His trust, his security is in his wealth, not in the Lord. And Jesus can see that. Now on the surface, it might seem like what Jesus tells him to do is to do a good work. Remember earlier I said that I was making the implication that salvation is not by works, and then Jesus said, one thing you lack, go and do this. It might seem on the surface that Jesus is saying, you've done good things, but you need to do more. You've gotten halfway there, but do some more. But what I want to say is Jesus is essentially telling him to put his faith in God, not in his possessions. What he's asking him to do is a matter of faith. Not a matter of works. In other words, Jesus is moving the conversation from works to faith. He's getting at his heart. See, his identity is attached to money. How do we know that? Well, verse 22 says he won't give it up. He wouldn't, he wouldn't give it up. He, in, in the face of two treasures, Christ or his possessions, he chooses his possessions he becomes disheartened, he becomes sorrowful because to give that up would be to give up everything that tells him he has significance. He's achieved success. He's financially secure. He holds a position of power of some kind. He has climbed the social ladder. He's morally and religiously successful. And yet there's this hint in his soul he doesn't have it all together. That's why he came to Jesus in the first place. And the moment that Jesus points out that very thing, he can't give it up. See, friends, if eternal life is based on performance and doing, then of course he's missed something because perfection is a really impossible standard to achieve. I mean, how can anyone, in one sense, be good enough? How can anyone have assurance that they've measured up? See, despite, if, if salvation is based on, accomplishments and performance and works, then there will always be a latent, lingering emptiness, an insecurity, a doubt, this nagging sense that you do not measure up. Because it's not like when we come to this place where we want to uh, become a Christian or be saved that we stop doing bad things. We continue to do bad things even though we might start to do good things and the good will never outweigh the bad. If you ask most people, hey, if there is a heaven, if there is eternal life, how do you get it? How do you get there? And most world religions, they'll say it in a different way, but it all boils down to basically this. You have to be good in order to get into heaven. Whether they say it explicitly or implicitly, you've got to be good. Now, you might um, have some uh, other religion that tells you what those standards are. Um, what's really popular in our day is just to come up with your own standard of what is good, right? Now, here's the problem with that. Most of the time when we make our own standard, we make them really, really low, you know, so that we can jump over it. It's like if you were going to um, uh, make a hurdle, you just make it really, really low. So, of course, you can jump over it, right? It's easy. But here's the truth of the matter. I think if you spend enough time with people, you find out they don't even perform under their own standards. Whatever standard you make, we often fall well below that. And the problem is, is that God's standard is his own perfection. And so none of us come close to that. And so Jesus looks at this man and he loves him enough to tell him the truth. Hey, friend, you have viewed salvation all wrong. It's not about what you do. It's about where you put your faith and your identity. And you, my friend, have put it all in your own possessions. And so the only way to transfer that faith from them to me is to give it all up. Jesus is essentially telling him, put your faith in me. Come follow me. Don't follow this path that you've laid. You see, friends, one of the fundamental realities about being a Christian is that everything in your life now becomes negotiable. Everything else in your life becomes negotiable because Christ is your only non-negotiable. So here's what I mean. Everybody has these things in our lives that we say, I don't care what happens. I don't care what comes my way. These are These are the non-negotiables. These are the things that aren't up for debate. They're not for sale. You can't take them. You can't have them. You you can't convince me otherwise. And then there's everything else that's negotiable. Like the the, the transient things, the things that you you might care about, but they're not the absolutely non-negotiables in your life. And you build your whole life around protecting, maintaining, and guarding those non-negotiables. For this man, it was his wealth. If Jesus is Lord and he's your only non-negotiable, then Jesus can come and ask for anything in your life. And your response is, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, I trust you. And if you're telling me that holding on to this thing will be detrimental to my soul, then I trust you completely. I will give it up. See, truly following Christ means... That he's the only, the only one non negotiable in your life. Because if he's not, then that other thing now has more priority, more value. That thing becomes your treasure. You notice how Jesus even um, presents those things as treasure. He's like, give up your possessions and come find another treasure. If there's anything that has more priority and value, Then him, then that thing becomes your treasure. That thing becomes your identity. In other words, that thing becomes your functional God. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. It's not simply worshiping some pole or some wooden statue. That's like low-level idolatry. We are much more sophisticated in our idolatry than that. We don't have little shrines built up in our home with incense and things anymore. Our idols are the things we value more than God. Friends, everyone will have a choice as you follow Christ. uh, Throughout your life, you will be presented with things that will uh, be seemingly more valuable to you than God. Things are going to compete for your affection and devotion to the Lord. And following Christ means saying no to those things and yes to him. An idol is anything in your life that rises to this level of importance to you that dethrones the Lord, where that thing is now on God's throne. It consumes your heart. It consumes your imagination. It's what you spend your time thinking about. It's it's that thing when you say, if I can get a free moment, that's what I want to do. Anything you look at to give you your core identity, the thing you're saying, I need this to tell me who I am. An idol is anything you look at and you say, if I could just have that, then my life will have meaning. Without it, I have no meaning. But the moment I get that, the moment I achieve that, the moment I climb there, then I'll know I have value. Then I'll know I'm significant. Then I'll know I'm secure. See, God's gifts are only good when they are put in the right order in your life. And the tragic reality of sin is that any number of these good gifts that God intends for us to enjoy can quickly become gods. They can become toxic. They can become destructive. And it's only in the right priority that those good gifts are able to be enjoyed. And so what's happening in this conversation is that Jesus takes this young man deeper into his heart than he had expected to go. See, he thought he was getting uh, just some spiritual advice from Jesus, and Jesus used his words to cut him to the heart. This man had only ever skimmed the surface of his depravity. And Jesus comes and takes him deeper to show him that he has a greater treasure in his life than the Lord. And what what Jesus is doing is calling this rich young man into an identity that is received as a gift instead of one that's achieved by works. See, Jesus wants to give him an identity, not make him earn an identity. But at this point, the young man walks away disheartened. He doesn't trust Jesus enough to actually believe that Jesus is the greater treasure. So he walks away. See, ultimately, this man's possessions own him. And so he obeys his master and he walks away. He walks away. Jesus answers this man's question. It just wasn't the answer he wanted to hear. Let's keep going in verse 23 to see the explanation. And Jesus looked around, said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed At his words. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So the rich young ruler walks away and Jesus turns to to his disciples and tells them it will be very difficult for, for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God. It's kind of his summary statement of what's just happened. See, the rich young ruler chose his own riches over the riches of the kingdom. And at this point, the Bible tells us the disciples were amazed. Now let me tell you why they were amazed. See, they grew up in a culture that didn't see wealth as evil. They saw wealth as just tangible evidence that the favor of God was on you. Like if you lived life right, God blessed you with wealth. It was very common at this time, if someone was poor, to go, they must have done something. God doesn't treat people like this, so they must have done something to cause this poverty. Maybe it was them, maybe it was their parents, maybe it's a generational thing, but I can tell you, That they've lived wrongly. But when you see wealthy people, you go, they must be living right. They must be living well. In other words, or or else why would God give them all of this wealth? And so when Jesus says, actually it's going to be really difficult for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God. He's just like blowing up their whole worldview. They can't even comprehend it. It's just not how they thought the world was structured. They've assumed material prosperity meant you were living a good life and God was pleased, And friends, that's called karma, not Christianity. It's a completely different scale. Now, Jesus does not subscribe to these overly simplistic views. See, to Jesus, great wealth is not inherently evil, nor is it a sign that God is pleased with your lifestyle. It doesn't just easily break down into those categories. And he goes on. And he says, actually, verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were exceedingly astonished and said to them, well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, I want to suggest to you that this metaphor of a camel fitting through the eye of a needle is not meant to simply convey difficulty. It's not merely difficult to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. It's impossible. That's the point. Jesus is saying it's impossible for those whose identity is consumed by and formed by riches to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus uses this metaphor because he actually wants you to picture squeezing a camel and all of those humps through the eye of a needle. I can't even get the thread that's meant to go through the needle, into the needle, let alone a giant camel. And it's impossible, and that's the point. Don't miss Jesus' point here. Don't miss the context of the teaching where Jesus just offered a rich person an invitation to salvation. Jesus does not say it's a sin to be rich. You notice he just asked and invited a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So he's not saying that rich people aren't allowed into the kingdom. It's not that rich people are bad and poor people are good. That's not Jesus' philosophy either. He's also not just offering a simplistic warning. Hey, be careful. Don't fall into greed. That's not I mean, that's true, but that's not precisely what he's saying. He's not saying, listen, from time to time, give a little to the poor so that you can secure your, financial, your eternal future. That's not what he's saying. Jesus' main point here is this. Financial wealth and prosperity have a way of blinding us to the reality that we have needs. Financial prosperity and wealth have a way of blinding us to our spiritual condition. That we are in a desperate state of need. It blinds us from seeing, friends, that we have something radically and fundamentally wrong with us money for all the good that it does also can give us a false sense of security and power and deceive us from seeing our true spiritual state that we are in desperate need of miraculous intervention from God. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that rich people can't get over that. And he's not saying that that there aren't other things in the world that can do the same thing. He's just saying of of all the things in the world, money has just this propensity to blind us from those things. And the disciples are shocked by it. Because again, remember, they think rich people are like automatically favored by God. So they ask the question, well then, if rich people don't get saved, who can be saved then? Who can be saved? And Jesus comes in and says... In terms of man's efforts, salvation's actually impossible. It's impossible. It's not merely difficult, it's impossible. The only reason salvation is possible is because the Lord makes it possible. Did you hear that in Jesus' words? He says, with man, it, meaning salvation, is impossible. But all things are possible with God. And at this point in Mark's gospel... He wants that to linger in your mind. Like, well, then how is salvation going to be made possible? Well, that's what the rest of Mark's gospel is all about, with Jesus going to the cross. But at this point, Jesus is saying, listen, money can blind you from seeing your true spiritual state. And if we take that principle and broaden it out, I'd like to suggest to us that money isn't the only thing that can blind us from seeing Jesus as the true treasure. So of course, money has a particular deceptiveness, but we all have things in our life that we think are valuable. So maybe for some, I'll try to tease some out. For some, it might be popularity. Being known, being famous, being famous, being special, and I'm not just talking about high school, okay? this It actually goes further into life. Maybe we want to be sought out for our skill and talent in some area. Maybe we want to be seen as uh, an influencer. Like isn't this the, the allure of social media, right? I'm not, I'm not downing all social media. It's not what I'm trying to do. I am saying social media and our culture today has a power to deceive us into into thinking that we are more spiritually sound and secure. You can create a platform. You can create a persona where people like you, right? They put little hearts around everything you do, little thumbs up, all of those things, and then they just tell you in the comment section how brilliant you are, right? That can become so seductive, so alluring, so deceptive. For others, it might be relationships. There is this relationship in your life that is non-negotiable. Friends, before I served here, uh, I served at a, at a big mega church down in the south. And one of the areas I had a care a responsibility was for the uh, discipline, church discipline, care cases and all that. And in a church that was just way too big for its own good, there were so many people where this was a problem. You'd be sitting here with someone who was a Christian and they started to date a non-Christian and they would say, I, I can't give that up. I know they don't follow the Lord. I know they don't like my relationship with God, but I, I just love them too much. And it was so tragic to sit there and to go, you are setting your course for destruction. This does not end well. But for them, that relationship was a non-negotiable Jesus comes and says, don't be yoked to an unbeliever. And they say, this is mine. Jesus, you can have all of my life except this area. We can take good things like relationships. We can take good things like family and friendships. And we can elevate them to the most important things in our life. And when we do that, we take good things and make them toxic things. For others, safety and security might be your God. Doing everything in your life to mitigate out all risks. Comfort, maybe. Pleasure. The need to be needed. Success in career. Experiencing all that life has to offer. Experiences can become your God. Like good things, like weekend trips all over New England. That can become your God. Absolutely anything. For the rich young ruler, it was money. What is it for you? What is it for you that competes with the Lord to tell you who you are, to tell you you're significant, to tell you that you're loved? What is it that you just have this knee-jerk tendency that when you feel the Lord asking for it, your first reaction is to say, mine. It is so incredibly important for us to know what that is because it can deceive us and blind us and that's the thing about deceptive and blinding things you don't always see it that's why we need good community to help us see it sometimes if you have a good friend a good spouse saying I think this might be something in your life do not quench their voice it may very well be the spirit of the living God trying to get through to you. Don't misunderstand what God is saying in this passage. He's not condemning all wealth, all possessions. He's not condemning family, relationships. So He's not condemning those things. He's saying don't turn good things into God things. Because when you do, they become toxic, destructive, deceptive. And you will walk away from Jesus. You might think, no, I would never do that. But history shows it. Friendship show. It. I mean, if you've been following Christ for a long time, let me ask you this. The crew that you ran with, how many of them are left? I got saved when I was 15 years old. Had a fantastic youth group. Like our youth group was bigger than this church. And now I'm approaching 40, like I'm making the final descent, January, I'll be 40. And the crew I ran with, and I'm talking like, not like people on the fringe, I'm talking like people, we talked about uh, going overseas for the Lord, leading worship for the Lord, preaching for the Lord. I mean, these were like the leaders of the leaders, of the leaders of the youth group. And there are few still standing strong. And I guarantee you, They would have said, I will never forsake and leave Christ for something else. Jesus is saying, none of these things can become the center of your trust, the anchor of your soul, the deepest longing in your heart, the highest pursuit of your day. Jesus told the rich young ruler, and he's telling us, look, all of us have something radically wrong with us. We all take the good gifts God gives us, and we make them more important than him. Every one of us does that. And if you don't think you do, you're deceived. All of us do that. It's, it's the brokenness. It's the very reality of sin. That's what sin does. We look to other things to get our identity instead of looking To him. And because all of us do that, Jesus is saying, we are all camels who cannot fit through the eye of a needle. All of us. It's impossible to get through. But the good news of the gospel is that what's impossible with us is possible with God. See, with the Lord, He enables sinners like me to fit through the eye of a needle. And it's just right there in that simple thing that Jesus said. Be willing to make me the center of your trust, the anchor of your soul, the deepest longing of your heart. To give up and forsake anything and come follow me. And when you do that, camels fit through the eyes of a needle. In the end, Jesus says, whatever you have to give up to follow him is worth it. That's what he says in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Lord, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you that there's no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and all lands with persecutions, underline that, don't forget that, and in the age to come, eternal life. Many who are first will be last. Peter opens up his mouth as per usual. That's what he's really good at. And he says, well, Jesus, we're like the varsity team. We've given up everything to follow you. We left our fishing business. I left my wife and we're following you. Jesus, give me a pat on the back. And while it's true, I hope you hear the insecurity that comes out in Peter's comment. He's he's a good fisherman and here he is fishing for affirmation from Jesus. I love it. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't commend them either. He just simply says, listen, it is true. Those who follow God, who give up the treasures of this world, will receive an eternal inheritance. Ultimately, friends, I want you to know this. Whatever that Jesus calls you to give up, you will not get the short end of the stick. Jesus mentions houses, family, land. These all represent the most fundamental elements of your life. And so it's important that you hear this. Giving up popularity, notoriety, success, whatever it may be, whatever the thing is that is keeping you from holding on to Christ, whatever you give up, you will not get gypped by God. In the end, you will receive an eternal inheritance. You will not be left empty handed. Now it's ironic that Peter's the one to say, look how good we are, Jesus, how much we've given up. See, for Peter, possessions weren't the big thing. But in a few short chapters... He's going to be asked, like, hey, Peter, weren't you following Jesus? Right? And what happens? This idea for security, for safety, start welling up inside of him, and it causes him to deny Christ. See, it's just, it just that Peter hadn't come across the thing that he would be tempted to value more than Christ. And he denies him three times. Peter just hadn't had his moment yet when he had to give up something he truly valued. Now I'd like to think that maybe this rich young ruler later on in his life pondered more on what Christ had to say and gave up those things to follow Jesus. The the simple reality is, is we don't know. We do know what happened to Peter. Eventually he has an encounter with the risen Jesus and something about seeing Jesus die, be crucified and raised from the dead fundamentally changed him. Peter came to see that Jesus would love him no matter what, and he came to see that Jesus was the true treasure and the true inheritance. And that's why Peter said in in his first letter that we looked at uh, a few months ago, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. In other words, Peter came to see you can give up everything because there is an eternal Inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So friends, as we close, remember Jesus wants to give you an identity, not based on what you achieve or what you perform or what you do, but solely based on his love for you. Jesus wants you to know that there are things in your life, not tomorrow, but right now, that are competing for his uh, allegiance and devotion And there is a real temptation to turn those good things into God things. And Jesus says, give it up. Give it up because you can't embrace me and those things at the same time. Friends, Jesus achieved the impossible for us. He lived the life that you and I failed to live. He died for our sins and our place. He was raised. He defeated death by his death. In other words, he achieved the righteousness we lack. He paid the penalty we deserve to pay, and he conquered death to give us an eternal inheritance. And Because of that, camels like you and me can fit through the eye of a needle. Let's pray.